welcome. This is Christy Balsells. I'm the Executive Director of MitoAction, and I'd like to welcome you. It's October 3rd, 2008, and we're having our monthly Mito International Teleconference Outreach. I'm just going to mute the lines for a moment so that I can cut down on the static. Okay, can everyone still hear me? Great. This is Christy Balsells. Again, welcome. It's October 3rd, 2008, and I'm happy to welcome our speaker today, which is Dr. Alex Flores. Dr. Flores is a pediatric gastroenterologist at Tufts Floating Hospital for Children and is very passionate about helping to understand people with mitochondrial disease. Dr. Flores, I just want to do a quick check and make sure that when you speak, we can all hear you. Would you just say hello? Hello. Okay, great. Super. Everyone, I'm going to keep the lines muted just for the first part of Dr. Flores' presentation since we had some static, and then I'll unmute those lines again in order to have you um, have a chance to ask questions. So Dr. Flores works closely with Dr. Corson, who many of you may have heard speak before, who is a metabolic doctor at here in Boston at Tufts Floating Hospital for Children and has been seeing patients with mitochondrial disease for quite some time. And Dr. Flores, I'll tell you that it's a concern of many parents and a symptom that many adults face, they have GI issues. So we're really excited to welcome you today, and I'd like to hand it over to you and allow you to introduce yourself a little more, and we can go ahead and get started on our topic. Okay, well, it's very nice to be with uh, you, Christian, with the Mito Action folks, you know, and try to shed some light. Uh, I'm a pediatric gastroenterologist, but I've been doing this now for the last 30 years. My area of expertise is uh, gastrointestinal motility, and obviously you have to be involved with patients with mitochondrial disorders, given the fact that they're quite common. Um, we have a neurodigestive center at the Floating Hospital, and we've been working in motility for the last 15 years or so uh, when we develop all the techniques to assess that. In the past, you know, a lot of patients who have issues with motility or gastrointestinal disorders, they were uh, sort of ignored, not so much because uh, bad feeling of the doctors, but there was no ways to assess that. And especially with mitochondrial disorders, uh, as everybody knows, it's a very heterogeneous group of disorders, okay, which is characterized by the impairment of the energy production, you know, of the uh, respiratory chain. So when people ask me, what about mitochondria? What do they do? I always say, why they don't do? They do everything. So that's what is, unfortunately, a multisystemic uh, involvement, what you get in all those organs that require energy. And mitochondria affects, obviously, everything from brain to gut to bladder to muscle, etc. So as a result of that, we got interested in, in this particular issue. And uh, we have followed uh, many, many patients, you know, with mitochondrial disorders in my unit. Personally, uh, myself, you know, and uh, I think I have learned a lot. Still, it's a lot to learn. And perhaps the background of this, and one of the reasons I'm involved in this, and back in 2003, we published a paper in the American Journal of Gastroenterology, uh, Volume 8, Number 4. And in that, we sort of uh, set up the stage uh, for definition of some of the motility disorders that affect patients with mitochondrial problems. And the main thing was uh, a group of patients that have either upper gastrointestinal symptoms or lower gastrointestinal symptoms. Also, they were affected by 
moderate to severe disease, and depending what type of uh, mitochondrial or phosphorylation disorder, then the patients can be affected more severe or less severe. So you can see from the patient that are really extreme that they cannot eat, or the patients have more functional disorders. So that gives you an spectrum of this, this disease that happens with this condition, you know. And the difficulty is, as everybody knows, is how to diagnose that. And in that regard, there's been a lot of work now done by Dr. Bruce Cohen in the Cleveland Clinic and Dr. Bruce, Dr. Mark Corson here at the Floating Hospital at Tufts tried to figure out what is the best way to orient people with that. So that gives you a little background of why is that that we're interested in that. And what is interesting to me is in the last uh, 20 years, we have patients that we know what was wrong with them. And uh, we make an advancement now in terms of saying, well, we know what's wrong. The problem is how to manage those patients, how to treat those patients. But at least we don't say, well, I don't know what's wrong with you. We know what's wrong, but again, the the interventions still are not ideal, you know, and we're still dealing with a lot of these problems. So I would be happy to address any specific issues uh, with people. Uh, our experiences, uh, as I said, is not 10,000 years, but I think we have some experience dealing with this problem. So I will be happy to address issues as they come. Dr. Flores, before I open the group for questions, will you talk a little bit about what are some of the causes of the most common GI symptom that we hear about from mitochondrial disease patients, which is dysmotility? So if you'll explain what that means and what you think is contributing to that. Well, you know, as as we know, there is a... um, central nervous system that controls all your high functions, and that also relates very much so to the autonomic nervous system. But also we have a little brain in the gastrointestinal tract. So basically that coordinates the three aspects of the symptoms the patient is going to have. And they can start from the upper GI tract, simple with the swallowing mechanism. There are people who have dysphagia, inability to swallow correctly. They have esophageal dysmotility. They can have also gastroesophageal reflux associated with this, gastroparesis, which is the paralysis of the stomach. Going down the pike, you can have intestinal pseudostruction with this motility of the small bowel, pancreatic insufficiency, and gallbladder dysfunction, what we call biliary dyskinesia, and then down to the colon. And in the colon, people can develop refractory constipation with colonic inertia or sphincteric dysfunction as well. Some patients are unable to defecate because they have abnormality in the sphincter. So going through all those systems, remember, motility means that the nerves are firing the muscles that we have in the gastrointestinal tract. In fact, we have more neurons in one square inch of a small bowel than one square inch of spinal cord. So that tells you an idea how this enteric, myenteric plexus or the enteric nervous system is so rich. There is a specific, for instance, neurotransmitter called serotonin that is very important in the central nervous system. And again, in the bowel, we have more. So no no wonder why we have people saying, you know, how come people say gut feelings, you know? They don't say brain feelings. So because affects motility, affect the sensory, which is response to stress. When somebody has an intercurrent illness, somebody's going to take the test or going to take and a stressful situation, a trip, how come you get diarrhea? Or if you go to Mexico on vacation, you get constipated because you want to move your bowels. So it tells you it's a web that we're involved with your brain, with your autonomic control, and also with the enteric nervous system. So that will give you an idea how the motility works. Nerves firing muscles, muscle uh, 
putting in contact all the foods that we eat with the appropriate enzymes and chemicals in the GI tract to digest and absorb. And that obviously more crucial in kids than adults because obviously the child is growing, the adult has stopped growing, so it's not as crucial as a child who has this problem. So dysmotility affects all these aspects that I've just mentioned. And do you uh, have an idea of why the dysmotility is so common in people with mitochondrial disease? Well, because as, as we said earlier, you know, mitochondrial function affects pretty much every organ. And if there is abnormalities in the respiratory chain and the production of energy, one of the major functions of the, of the mitochondria is to synthesize ATP, which is going to provide energy for the whole body. So obviously the central nervous system and the enteric nervous system is very sensitive to those changes. So what we call homeostasis, which is the stability of the cell and, and the ability to produce energy, that's what causes the problem. So it's inher is is intrinsic to all the problems you know that we have and these mitochondria are all over the place because obviously it's part part of the cell so can affect the liver can affect the pancreas can affect the uh, small intestine the colon etc so it's basically not an organ that is not touched by the mitochondrial function mhm you know in in patients children and adults who have limited mobility or low muscle tone then GI issues can be a problem, particularly issues with motility. In people with mitochondrial disease, though, is, there must be more to it than just the low muscle tone. And perhaps part of that could be related to dysautonomia, which we've talked about on our conference calls before. Would you, would you talk a little bit about that? Well, you know, it it's, 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 it's absolutely makes complete sense because the embryological origin, when you know when the babies are in formation in utero, the autonomic nervous system comes from the same place that the enteric nervous system, which is the neural crest, which is located on top of the kidneys. And when they they're developing in utero, those those two systems are really tied together. And when there are abnormalities in the enteric nervous system, they're going to be autonomic dysfunction as well. So, it's, again, it makes sense from the physiological point of view that these patients will be affected of both things, which means that you're going to be having changes in the electrocardiogram. You can have changes in the muscle of the, the eye. You can have abnormalities in the heart, how the heart conducts the electrical impulses. And, again, we will have changes in the motility. And that's what that paper uh, that I'm referring to back in 2003, we describe the abnormalities in the motility, measuring, you know, sophisticated uh, ways to measure the motility in the small intestine or in the colon. So it, it is uh, pertinent to mention that you cannot separate those three things, you know, the autonomic control, the central nervous system, and the enteric nervous system. So when you see a patient with hypotonia, you see disorders in the GI tract, and that's not exclusive for mitochondrial disorders. You can see in patients with muscular dystrophy, with spinal muscular atrophy, all those patients, basically the gut will be a mirror that reflects the overall abnormalities in the muscle and do in this particular case to the mitochondrial disorder. So it makes full sense that that is affected. And are there recommendations that are, you know, general standards of care or practices that you typically follow when you see patients who start down this path of dysmotility? Well, the first thing, the three questions that I address in any patient that I see 
is number one, what's wrong with the patient. And I think that has to be addressed. Is the patient has a, a, a specific motility disorder of the stomach, the small bowel, the colon, does he have a cardiac insufficiency, etc. Second thing is, what are we going to do about it? Is there anything we can do? And the third one is the prognosis. So I, I think in general, you have to approach that in a very organized fashion because these patients have multi-systemic diseases, not just one thing that is wrong with them. So that's that's sort of, I, I don't want to give a specifics, you know, about that because each patient is different. But obviously there is a way to assess that. You want to be sure that there is no probably malabsorption. You want to be sure that there is no anatomical abnormalities. You want to be sure that there is no systemic problems. There are patients that they might have mitochondrial disease, but they can have also celiac sprue, for instance, allergy to gluten. Or they can have soy, cosmic allergy, or things that I might not be related specifically to mitochondrial disease. Unfortunately, God gave us sometimes one disease, but gives other disease on top of that. So you have to be aware. That's why you need to have somebody who has experience and recognize these conditions. Are there other clinicians that you recommend across the country that have experience with mitochondrial disorders and that affect the gut like you do? And, yeah, I'm sure there's good, some good people. It might not be, you know, as close as that because, as you know, with... We're lucky to have a, a very nice team with Dr. Corson here, but there is a, a lot of some more centers, you know, that they can uh, recognize, especially with the motility issue, uh, that they, they're very appropriate in, in assessing that. Boston Children's Hospital, they have one place that is nice. It's a good center. Uh, you have Milwaukee. You have Columbus, Ohio. You have uh, Cincinnati. You have um, people in... Uh, Louisiana. Uh, so there are some specific centers. You know, there are around 15 places that they are able to do motility. Uh, we have to, I have to say we're very unique, you know, here. In the Cleveland Clinic, for instance, you have Dr. Bruce Cohen, and I'm sure that people recognize the name. He is uh, very much involved with, in the management of patients with mitochondrial disorders. And the Cleveland Clinic, for instance, they have a very nice panel of gastroenterologists. The problem is that there are not too many that they have both things, you know. That doesn't mean that they cannot learn, you know, and uh, and start looking into all these problems with open eyes and be uh, willing to listen to the patient and see, well, we have to learn together in this one. Let's talk a little bit about nutrition before we open it up for questions. Um, for patients with mitochondrial disease, do you have any general recommendations that you find are helpful regarding nutrition? Well, there there are several issues, you know, in terms of how do we manage those patients, specifically, you know, depending on what type of disorder they have, you know, and we need to eliminate certain offenders, you know, of patients, for instance, they have long-chain fatty acid, you know, that, that rich on that diet, you ha we have to avoid those, you know, and try to switch more to um, medium-chain fatty acid. Ketogenic diets, for seizures, for instance, should be avoided because that those disorders can affect uh, problems. And anything that induces uh, lactic acidosis, for instance, is crucial. One of the things that we still don't quite understand why that happens and what's going to be probably one of the things that we're going to be looking more carefully now is the fluid requirement in these patients, you know. And uh, the nutrition is vital. Unfortunately, it's not all nutrition, you know. And for instance, you have to avoid prolonged periods of uh, uh, fasting, you know, because those patients tend to have uh, hypoglycemia associated with that. And then, obviously, if they're not able to support themselves fluid-wise or caloric-wise, then those patients will need to 
uh, have uh, means to support that via gastrostomy or via jejunostomy. Uh, so I like to leave as the last resource, you know, to use total parental nutrition, which is using central venous lines, because that usually causes more troubles, you know. So mm -hmm. I think high lipid, low carbohydrate diet in patients, for instance, in, in complex one deficiency, there are so many specific diets depending on what type of uh, respiratory chain disorder you have, you know. But I, this that gives you an idea. Uh, so in general, aggressive nutrition support is mandatory. And do you have a specific fluid requirement as well? I think that that's something that's um, important for mito patients also. Well, that's what I was saying, you know, because the autonomic dysmotility that they have, you know, this control, you know, sweating, color changes, inability to eliminate the fluid and all that, that is important. But again, I have to emphasize this. I, I, I'm a little skeptic about how much fluid people need, you know. I'm not sure that is that's well studied in the literature. In fact, when we open our center of innovation that we're going to have in Boston soon, which is going to be a combined nutrition, metabolic, and gastrointestinal center, probably the beginning of next year, that will be one of the points of research, you know, that we need to look a little bit more. But that's more anecdotal, you know. So, you know, and again, that's one of the things that, things like that. Do we know that they have autonomic dysregulation? Absolutely. Do we know if those patients have, for instance, abnormal tilt? Still testing and orthostatic hypotension, yes. So sometimes we recommend increased salt or use of hormones, you know, to for people to retain the water. In terms of the high requirements, I'll, all I can say is anecdotally we do that, you know, but um, and in, and patients tend to improve with that. But again, it's not well documented in the literature. Are there triggers that you feel that? you tell patients to avoid either because they cause pain or they can contribute to worsening of symptoms? You mean triggers that the patient itself uh, induces? Triggers or, like, or, right, triggers like, um, well, yeah. obviously fasting would be a trigger. Absolutely. Or well, anesthesia can be a problem. They use uh -huh. inappropriate solutions, you know, ringers lactate in a patient who is going to have surgery. It's important to be sure that the patient is well hydrated. Any intercurrent illness, intercurrent infection, respiratory problems, gastroenteritis, all those things can affect that. And again, I said, for instance, if a patient has, uh, let's say, a history of migraine or irritable bowel syndrome, those type of things might come up to hunt you there, you know. It stresses that can happen in a school, at work, you know, that could be another issue that, you know, you, know, you, have, you might have to consider, you know. So any and before I open the the lines for additional questions, is there anything else that you um, that comes to mind that you feel like is important to share with the adults and the parents of children who are affected who are well? On the call? You know, the other thing is uh, obviously the supplements. You know, the use of all the drugs that we use, the coenzyme Q10, mm -hmm. which is going to stabilize the mitochondrial membranes, is important. You know, because it's an an antioxidant bypass the complex one, L-carnitine. Another thing that we talk, multivitamins, all the antioxidants, and um, those things are important that your metabolic doctor helps you with that, you know. And uh, obviously, you have to be aware also that uh, some of these medications are quite expensive, you know, so it's difficult to manage that. And then, obviously, to have somebody who uh, knows about these areas. Unfortunately, a lot of general gastroenterologists are still not, not attuned, you know, with the management of these patients, so you can get lost there. So I think you have to educate, you know, the people, and that's most important, you know, in terms of uh, mitochondrial disorders. 
we did that maybe 20 years ago with patients with this motility. You know, people didn't know what was a motility disorder in pediatrics, you know, and now, you know, we make a big progress. But I think it's due to the fact that the parents are and patients are involved with that and we're able to have a partnership with them. So the other thing is the medications. We can talk about if it's questions in terms of uh, promotility agents, and I would be happy to address those too. Okay, great. And I'll just say I agree with you that it is the parents and the community that makes a difference in in bringing greater awareness to the even the physician community. And and for those of you who are listening, if you haven't already looked at the symptom guide for clinicians that's on mitoaction.org, this is a great place to get the kind of information that. That, that you can take to your physician and that you can share with them. So it's mitoaction.org slash guide, and uh, you'll be to accept the terms of use, and then um, you'll be able to access that, and there's no cost for it. And there is a section on GI there that's very useful and, and highlights some of the things Dr. Flores is sharing with us. I'm going to unmute the lines, and what we'll do is we'll just be respectful of one another, and um, I'll ask you to just, if you have a question, just speak up, and we'll take turns. Introduce yourself and tell us um, just very briefly whether you're a parent of an affected child, a patient, both a caregiver, and where you're calling from, and then we can ask Dr. Flores the questions, and I'll help to clarify if necessary. Again, I'll remind you, if you feel like you're in a place that's going to be noisy or have interference, we're going to use, you can use star six to mute or unmute your own line so that we cut down on background noise as much as possible. Okay, bear with me. You'll hear a little beep. Okay, now you're all live again. So who would like to ask Dr. Flores a question? Um, Christy, it's Bob Brief. Hi, Bob. Welcome. Hi, Christy. Um, I'm an adult with um, mitochondrial myopathy and uh, severe motility problems. And uh, since you were just talking about medications and supplements, I'd like to know what Dr. Flores would say about medications that might be dangerous or contraindicated that that are common medications that people, for example, antidepressants uh, or other things that might affect motility. Great question. So, Dr. Flores, I'll just let you answer that directly. Yeah, any, any, anything, you know, any opioid or anything that is low to motility is bad, you know, but in terms of the GI motility issues. Uh, things like phenobarbital that inhibit uh, oxidative phosphorylation also might not be the best thing for a patient, but proic acid affects the respiratory and fatty metabolisms. And seeds, you know, aleve, motrin, all that might also affect that. And I think it's important to avoid aminoglycosides, for instance, things like gentamicin, that can affect as well, you know. So the other thing that you have to be careful is with the anesthetic, you could, because that can inhibit the mitochondrial ATPase, which is an enzyme, and can affect that. So those patients, they need to be assessed appropriately. In terms of uh, drugs that affect the motility, uh, for instance, in patients who have common colds and may use something to dry them up, that might be ephedrine, all that. Ephedrine, for instance, can also affect that. So I think you have to be careful. You have to consult your uh, doctors in terms of interaction. So in in general, things that might affect that. Antibiotics, you know, in some patients, they might produce uh, diarrhea, and some patients can produce constipation. So it, it's important to look into that as well. Yes. 
One other question about medication. Uh, There was a product called Zelnorm that was taken off the market that I used to take that seemed very helpful. Do you know whether it's available anywhere in the world or is that completely off limits now? That was a fantastic product, you know. Unfortunately, it's called uh, it's, it's a drug, Tegasro is the name, and it's unfortunately that drug um, was identified to have two actions. One, it, it was helpful for uh, constipation, you know, and the, yes. and the second thing was very helpful is to uh, induce uh, gastric motility, and it was a very safe drug. The problem is when they were epidemiological studies from the company that they they uh, produced this product, there was a higher incidence of ischemic heart disease in those patients. And, you know, unfortunately, you know, the FDA was very much aware of that and the drug came out of the market. But I agree with you. It was, we use it in pediatrics. You know, in pediatrics, we're in disadvantage because most of these drugs we use is off-label, you know. And uh, uh, we're in terms of... Uh, the world of motility, we're in tough shape now because there are not too many drugs that we have, but I'm, I'm with you 100%. I wish the drug was here, you know. Is there a way to get any way to no, get No, I it? would not recommend it because it's, I don't think it's available you know, by any reputable uh, okay. uh, manufacturer. Sometimes you go on the Internet and you find this made in, you know, in Turkey or in, you know, any place, and I wouldn't recommend that because yes. I don't know how safe is to use that. Okay. Great question, Bob. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, another person tried to jump in there and have a question also, so I'll let that person speak up. Go ahead. Hi, um, my name is Karen Kohlmeyer, and I live in Bangor, Maine, and my daughter is seven and has um, um, Oxfos uh, Complex 1. And, Doctor, I thought I heard you mention that um, perhaps someone with a, the problems of the Complex 1 might have might need a special diet. So I just wanted to. Uh, well, in the past, you know, I, uh, in the past, people used to uh, used to a high lipid, low carbohydrate diet. In that, you know, and but I I don't know if that is still the case for specific oh. patients, you know. Okay. Uh, so I mentioned that, but I think at, at this point, you know, we uh, we still like to keep a good supply of carbohydrates, you know, high to maintain yeah. the, the sugar, so you don't have more glycolysis. Because what happens with glycolysis is that you have the formation of two molecules, and and um, this uh, pyruvate is the reduced to lactate eventually, you know, and that's what produces the acidosis okay. in those patients. So, you know, I think I think that diet rich in carbohydrate, you know, still is is a good good way to go, you know. Uh, did you say low or high? High. High. Okay. Yeah. High. Okay, good. Um, and one more question. My daughter, um, since birth, has had a real problem with... Um, I said, no, what I said, I'm sorry, was high lipid, low carbohydrate diet, you know? Oh, high lipid, low carb. Low carbohydrate, uh, Okay, yeah. high lipid, low um, Just to you. clarify, because what Dr. Flores is saying is that you want to reduce um, the... Dr. Flores, feel free to jump in and say yep. this again. But you, you want to reduce that need to metabolize those carbohydrates. Correct. Got the it. The byproduct is that's the lactic correct. acid, Got and that that's elevates correct. your lactic acid. Thank, thank you for that, Christy. Good. That's a good. That's thank you. Uh, got it. And the other part of uh, my daughter is the mo- dysmotility in her um, bowels and has had severe constipation. And um, the only thing, we've tried everything, and um, I see Dr. Bowie in um, Boston. Very good, and, man. 
Yes, he's great and has been very helpful and very patient. Um, and right now she's on Daily Senna, which does has been very helpful um, to avoid the hard, painful balls that she was having. However, she um, I, she takes around one in the afternoon. By around six, she gets very crampy every evening. She gets she's very crampy, and then she'll have a ball movement. Is there any anything else that I could take that would be less um, uh, bothersome to her? Well, there is a there is a few things. That's what we run into issues, you know, when when we in a in a phone conference because you know I this is one thing that I learned through the last thirty years doing this. You know, you have to be careful in giving advice. You know, when you haven't seen the patient. You know, but, oh, exactly. But they, but I tell you one thing: there are many things still and new things in the market to to treat patients with that. You know. Yeah. And they and they just coming out with new stuff and they obviously. The Senna is okay, you know, but it's it, still there are some other things that we can do to to treat that, you know. Yeah, it, it I, I it's say, working, but she just you know gets so crampy, and now that you she's know, like there is a there is a new protocol, Amitiza, capital A M I T I Z, a zebra A. Amitiza is a is lubiprostone. It's a new colokinetic agent, for instance, that doesn't uh, affect any type of cardiac rhythm, doesn't have any side effects, like ischemic coronary heart disease, nothing like that, and it, and it's a tablet, you know, that you can take, and uh, it's been very useful in my patients with colonic dysmotility, but again, go back to the first question I told, the first question I asked, the, the patients come to see me, what's wrong with my kid, is this child has a myopathy in the colon, does he have a neuropathy, it's a problem in the sphincter, you know, so that needs to be assessed before you freelance and give advice, you know. Oh, absolutely, absolutely, and I understand that. And I wouldn't do anything without, you know, consulting with Dr. Bowie. Sure. Um, sure, and she has had a fundoplication, and so right, as one it. sphincter affects the next sphincter, as far as I understand. So we have had a lot of problems in this area. So um, um, I just was wondering, you know, if I should continue the conversation with Dr. Bowie about looking absolutely. for other, other alternatives absolutely. for her. Sure. Yeah. No, there, I think you're not at the end of the road, basically. Well, okay, okay, good. Great. Thank and you. On that on that topic, Dr. Flores, do you have any general recommendations about use or avoidance of stimulant laxatives, which some people might be using in order to try to combat the dysmotility? Well, uh, you know, the, there is a lot of myths about using the laxatives in these patients. You know that that you can produce a narcotic bowel or a laxative uh, colon bowel. A lot of patients need a stimulation, you know, and uh, I have to say I like to stay away from the Senna, you know, because you condition mark the colon, but bisacoril can work, amitiza can work, uh, sometimes uh, all the polyethylene glycol uh, compounds like uh, glycolax, miralax, all those might work. Usually uh, mineral oil type of compounds I like to avoid because most of these patients have problems with delayed gastric emptying and mm -hmm. they can be at risk of aspiration, especially the, ch the, ch the children with that. But I think there is a spectrum of, of things that you can still use in this patient. And then you go to the more aggressive surgical situations in which if the constipation is that severe, you know, you might have to use surgical approaches like secostomies, appendicostomies for anti-grade enemas. So, you know, you have a panel of things. And obviously the diet is useful, you know, uh, rich in fiber. But the problem with that is that these children and adults, you know, they're not sometimes able to eat, so dietary manipulation might not be the best in this setting. Thank you. Okay, another question from another person. I have person, a question. Dr. Flores. Yes, go ahead. Oh. <laughs> Can you guys not hear me? 
I can hear you. Go ahead. Oh, okay. I didn't know if I was still muted. I'm sorry. I have to ask now, actually, because we have a GI appointment in an hour. <laughs> um, yeah, go figure. Um, I, my daughter seems to experience a huge variation in her ability based on what seems to be based on her overall energy status. Like today, she's having a terrible time. She eats anything orally. She starts to swell up like a balloon. And that's a... a she takes. She has a G tube. She has a pyloroplasty. She takes both glycolax and Senna um, to basically the maximum dose um, to have any sort of anything come out. A lot of the time, other times she can take less. Sometimes she digests food. Sometimes she does not. She had motility testing, anterodental uh, manometry, and it said it was normal. But clinically, she's having problems, and she had the pyloroplasty because her gastric emptying was ridiculously delayed. And now we're still having this problem with things not making their way through or just seeming to produce huge amounts of gas. Like this morning, I've been venting her every hour and a half, but that's a real problem because how, how do I get her to eat something, you know? And I'm just very frustrated by all of the gas and by the conflicting clinical and test results. How old is your daughter? She's four. Yeah. Oh, and we live in Illinois. Sorry. And she, got a, and she had a, a, a manometry done? She did. And just she, the yeah, just the intraduodenal. Sorry. And the gastric emptying, and after the pyloroplasty is normal. Um, they didn't do another one after the pyloroplasty. Well, you know that would be. Emptying. You know that would be important to figure out. First of all, you oh, know, oh. with the fundoplication, she had a fundoplication too, right? No, she did not. No fundoplication. So just the no. pyloroplasty. So you know right. those patients. Uh, if the if the intraduodenal manometry is normal, that is a very important piece of information, you know. Usually it's the other way around. The gastric emptying can be normal. If the gastric emptying is normal, around 30% of patients will have abnormal antrodunal manometry. If the manometry is normal, it might not be the reason for the discomfort of your child. It might be a different situation like receptic accommodation and relaxation disorder of the fundus of the stomach. Nothing to do with motility. So I think if it was done appropriately, so I don't know where they did the manometry, if you tell me I w which place did they did the manometry? It was Cincinnati, so it's supposed to be reliable. Yeah, that's very good. Yeah, good place. Okay. So if they tell you if we was uh, done by by the group there, I think that's that's uh, you're in good shape, and the fact that it's normal is reassuring. But that doesn't cure the problem. That doesn't fix you, and they might have to look into the second problem that I told you, maybe receptor accommodation, relaxation disorder. You know, and you have to eliminate our possibilities. Uh, once you have the pyloroplasty, you know, that's, that should take care of that. Occasionally, that can give you side effects like dumping syndrome. So you have a lot of fluctuations in the uh, glycemic control. So you have to be careful with that as well. You know, so are they things to help? Sure. Sometimes those patients might not be able to tolerate gastric, gastric uh, feeding tubes. They might have to have a, a jejunal uh, feeding, you know, program. And there are or drugs that might help, you know, to accommodate the stomach, you know, in in this situ in situation like that, and uh, you have to discuss that with the gastroenterologist, you know. Sometimes the use of periactin, gabapentin, and donatal that might help with that, you know, because I I understand what you're saying. If you keep venting, venting and venting, you know, the child is not going to be able to eat. Does he have TPN or has nocturnal feedings? Is yeah. he on a, a a night drip or how how do you feed her? She is. She gets um, at night and during the day. We try to give her solids because she likes to eat. Yeah. It's just that sometimes it just kind of seems that we get stuff that comes out like yeah. 
you know, 10 days after she ate it, but it's identifiable. Yeah. And so, so those are the things that you probably need to discuss with them, you know. Does he have, does he have abdominal pain at all? Yes. Yeah, sometimes they can develop this uh, visceral hyperalgesia syndrome as well, and there is a, a different type of set of drugs that might help, you know. Because I'm sure, I'm sure they try, they try here on Reglan and erythromycin, things yes. like that. Yes. Yeah, and that might not yeah. work in that condition. Different type of problem. So okay. I think you have to address those things, you know, with your doctor, you know, and discuss what are the next yeah. steps. Yeah, and the air can be related to that. Sure. Okay. Thank you, Dr. Flores. You. Is that Jenna who was asking the question? Yes, this is Jenna. Oh, hi. Sorry. Hi, Jenna. Okay, that's great. I'm glad that you got a chance to ask. Okay, we have still some time for a couple more questions. So, um, Go ahead. I'm just calling from Arizona. This is Julie in Arizona. I have a quick question. Um, we have a two-year-old that's been diagnosed, and we have been desperately trying to get into Corson and you <laughs> and have run into walls with your administrative staff. Yep. What is your suggestion for parents coming out of state to come and see these specialists to try to get in? Do you suggest that we go through your nurse? Do you suggest we go through Corson first to try to collaborate with the two of you? How do we do this for parents that are flying miles and miles to come see you? Well, first of all, I, I have to apologize. It's embarrassing, you know, being the national <laughs> teleconference. The problem is that, unfortunately, I'm just one guy, you know. I know. And, and you know, it's, I'm, I, I, believe me, I don't feel good about that, not because I'm so good, I'm so famous. I feel embarrassed <laughs> because we should be able to provide better service, you know. The problem is, as you probably can imagine, is this is a very complex type of group of kids, you know. And sure. and once somebody throws you a lifeline, I, if I have a kid, since I have five, you know, and have a problem like that, I will go to the end of the world to try to do it. So first of all, I apologize for that because that's not right, you know. But unfortunately, you know, it's the the, the best thing that we can do sometimes is if you call me directly. I might sometimes I squeeze people in, you know, like that, not to okay. try to over, you know, overpower our people. But you know, and and you know, it's not just me. Unfortunately, if you call around the centers that do this. Um, they are also very behind, you know. As you yes. will, when you come and you have those studies done, they are pretty elaborated, you know. So I'm not excusing all of us, you know, in the in the in the field of pediatric gastroenterology. And unfortunately, the combo of motility and uh, and metabolic situation is not quite there. The good news, I tell you, we we saw the problem. We know that it's a big problem. We're not taking care with good care of the patients because. We're pretty overwhelmed. So uh, starting in January, there's going to be this center that we're opening, you know, here at Tufts, in which is a center called, it's a center of innovation and medical care. And hopefully we're going to be able to expedite, you know, that type of referral, you know. So call me. If you call me to my office, I'll, I'll try to do something, you know. And I usually tell people there or centers that have that, you know, Boston Children's has a, a program there. Uh, near your area... Uh, with the combination, I don't think I see too much there, you know? No, yeah. Okay, then I will call and see what I can do. That's but again, not a I, again, we're working on it, you know, still we're not there yet. So sure. Hopefully, hopefully we can do a better job. Thank you. Okay. Hello? Hello? Hi. Okay, who, who would like to ask the next question? Go ahead. Hi. I'm from BC, Canada. And I wonder if there's any center in BC, Canada that is good for uh, treating mitochondrial disease and motility problems. 
Dr. Flores, do you know of anything off the top of your head? No, I don't think there is too much there, unfortunately. You know, um, I, I think in pediatrics there is some uh, very capable no, I'm at an adult, adult, not yeah. that I'm familiar with, no. Okay, now i got one more question. I'm just starting the assessment of um, mitochondrial disease and motility problem. Yes. What should the test be? Like, what kind of test should, uh, should be done? Be, yeah, be done well, as a first step. Uh, is, is, it, is it mainly motility in the upper GI tract, you know, stomach, <laughs> intestine, or mainly a problem with constipation and colon problems? Uh, mostly upper. Upper. Like yeah, swallowing. So, so swallowing. there are the different things. The simple thing is a gastric emptying study, you know, solid liquid gastric emptying. Then there is a way to assess the motility in adults, what we call the smart pill, also to measure transit. And then the perhaps the one that is the gold standard is what we call anthroduodenal motility study. So those are the three ones, you know, big ones. Obviously, they have to rule out any other possibility, you know, or issues. Do you have any other problems? In the upper GI tract, do you have an H. pylori infection? Do you have celiac disease? So your gastroenterologist will will uh, sort of uh, guide you through that. So I was sent into a swallowing assessment. So will the next step should be a referral to a GI specialist? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay, thank you. My pleasure. And thank you. Another person, I think, started to ask a question at the same time, so I'll, I'll go ahead and open the door for that person who was sure. going to ask. Hi, my name is Linda Rauer, and I have a 14-year-old daughter. Um, she's been diagnosed with dysautonomia and Ehlers-Danlos syndrome so far, and mm -hmm. they're what type? What type of Ehlers-Danlos? We but just did the genetic testing to find out what type. Oh, so you know, you don't know that. We okay. don't have it back yet. Yeah. Okay. And then um, they're calling it probable mitochondrial disease. Um, she is having a lot of motility issues, both upper and lower, and she is also having um, major pain and in her stomach. After eating, after bowel movements, um, it never goes down below a 7 out of 10, um, and when it goes up, obviously, it goes up at least to a 9 or a 10. Um, I can't get anybody <laughs> who wants to help us. Where do you live? Ohio. Ohio, near Columbus. About an hour and a half. Yeah, there is an excellent center there, a very, very competent motility person, and the name is Dr. Carlo Di Lorenzo. Uh, you want to spell that? <laughs> Carlo, C-A-R-L-O, mm -hmm. Di Lorenzo, D-I-L-O-R-E-N-Z-O. -O. Okay. And it's in the, it's in the Children's Hospital in Columbus. Dr. Di Lorenzo is uh, very well. I can I have the phone here for you. I can give it to you. 614-722-2000. And he's an expert in motility and I'm sure and also able to address those issues, you know, with you and it's close by to you, you know, fantastic okay. place. So that's okay. what I me advice. We have been going up to um Rainbow Babies at University of Cleveland and they just don't know what to do. No, no, that's not the uh, good place for general stuff, not the place for your problem. Dr. Okay. Di Lorenzo will be the best uh, locally there. I don't know how strong they are in mitochondrial things, but we'll be happy to help you, you know, to oversee things in terms of motility, top of the best 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 uh, place there. Okay. We're we're willing to <laughs> you know how you would be. You're willing to go wherever for your kid. 
Oh no, I know, I know, I know. But you know, but honestly, uh, I will take my kid to Doctor De Lorenzo. He's okay. um, very much uh, well respected, one of the world world's authorities in this. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Flores, for being specific also, because I think that it really helps. The more specific um, knowledge that you can share, the more it actually not only informs, but it empowers us, the patient and parent community, to really Absolutely. be able to do that advocacy ourselves and not just be waiting on someone else to do it for us because Absolutely. we are willing to do that. I think we have Christy, time for one or two more may questions. May I have ask a question, please? Is it Jean? Yes, it is. It's Jean Hi, Shepherd. Jean, go ahead. You can Jean Shepherd from BC ask. Canada. Uh-huh. Um, you just mentioned um, being willing to... Um, help out doctors with GI uh, GI doctors who don't have experience with mitochondrial disease. Uh, are you willing to do that? Yeah, of course. In other words, if we went to a GI doctor, could we give them your name and uh, sure. access, and you would you would consult with them of even course. if they're out of out of country? Of course. Of course, no problem. Okay. May may I have your information, please? Uh, you want you want my phone? Yes, please. It's a six one seven. Six one seven. Six three six. Six three six. Three two six six. Three two six six, and that would address the, the question then, from yeah, the other lady from you BC. Can give, you can give you the email too. Is a Flores? A F L O R E S. Correct. Correct. At. At. Tufts, T as the train, U, F as Frank, T, S, Tufts, yes. Medical Center dot org. That's all one word, Tufts one Medical word. Center. One word, all one word. C-E-N-T-E-R. Center, C-E-N-T-E-R, yeah. Tufts Medical Center dot org, one word. org, okay. Okay. Thank you very much. That will address a question from the other lady from B.C. and possibly others. Yeah, sure, Christy. we'll be happy to. Christy? Yes. Can I ask you uh, if it's possible uh, not only to have the recording online, but also maybe a written, uh, like a written overview of this conversation, of this conference? Of course, I actually always provide that. So um, you. if you if so, you browse around in the blog, then you'll see that. So I'm gonna let I'm gonna help you to thank Dr. Flores for this um, information. I also just want to speak on his behalf and say I know that all of you will be respectful in understanding how busy he is, and so Dr. Flores, we won't abuse the generosity that you've offered in. In, no, my pleasure. In sharing that's, your information. No, um, that's my that's my job. It's my pleasure. You know, we'll be happy you know, to try to help. I, I'm sure you get the feeling that for many people who don't have access to um, the type of coordinated care that we are lucky to have for people with mitochondrial disease in the Boston area, that they feel desperate. They're clutching at straws to be able to find someone who can understand or is willing to learn to be able to help. And conferences like what we're doing today that then go online and go on with a written summary and go on as an audio file that other parents, patients, and clinicians can listen to go a very long way. And so we really appreciate you taking oh, an no, hour pleasure. of your time to do this. Uh, and as, as I said, you know, hopefully in the next, uh, the beginning of the next year, we will have a much better way to 
manage this because I know it's not the most adequate thing, you know, that we have right now. And obviously, Dr. Flores, once that's up and running with you and Dr. Corson, um, I'll, I'll put an update on our website okay. so people can know about that. Well, it's Is been a anything, pleasure, and hopefully... Anything else? Okay, great. Anything else you wanted to share with the group? Well, hopefully, you know, I didn't bore you too much with my, my accent, you know, but uh, I wish you a good uh, weekend, and if I can help, we'll be happy to <coughs> You impressed us. <laughs> well, you stay well, you know, and I wish you for all the best. Feel well, and if I can help you, will be my pleasure. Thank you from Canada. Thank you. Okay. Thank you so much. Thank you. Bye, Christy. Thank you. Bye, bye. Okay, so bye, bye. I'm going to let Dr. Flores hang up, but we can stay on the line, um, and we can continue to talk a little bit. So, um, we'll thank talk you, later, Christy. Thank you okay, for having thank me. You. Bye, thank bye. you so much. Bye, bye. bye. Thank you. All right, bear with me one second. I'm going to end our recording um, unless anyone has any other questions that I might be able to help you with related to GI motility. And then we'll stay on the line. We can do some introductions and just some general conversation. Uh, one quick question, questions? because I came in late, uh, Christy. Um, I had a, a, another adult from uh, BC, Canada, ask me to ask Dr. Flores if the uh, – Conditions that appear, GI conditions that appear in children also appear in adults. Um, you know, my understanding from listening to him is that yes, that that it happens because it's related more to the actual metabolic energy issues, not because it's a pediatric versus adult type of disease. That when you look at the root of what the problems are. The root is related to the actual um, pathways that are creating energy and allowing the gut to be able to move and to respond appropriately. Good. Thanks for uh, thanks for adding that to the tape. Sure. Any other additional questions that I may or may not be able to answer before I uh, wrap it up and let us move on to the next part? Christy, I have a question. Oops, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Hey, um, turns. It's okay. Go ahead. Christy, I'm from Ohio, um, oh. and I am a parent of a child with a 7-year-old who initially was diagnosed with eosinophilic esophagitis yes. um, and also um, has severe dysmotility, um, lots of reflux. At this point, um, is only on an elemental formula, um, prolonged gastric emptying just on the liquid phase. And RGI, we're also at uh, at this point at Rainbow Babies and Children's, um, and RGI has suspected a mitochondrial disorder for my daughter. Um, so we did go to the Cleveland Clinic and have that initial lab work done, but that's not back yet. Um, at this point, I guess my questions are, um, some I've heard a little bit about domperidone, and I, do, I know you have to get it from another country, but I'm not sure what the youngest age that that can be imported. And then our GI has brought up the possibility of a GJ tube, um, and I'm just wondering if, we need if it's typical to proceed with additional motility testing of the small intestine before you would put in a GJ tube to make sure that that's what's going to be effective and that she only has gastric motility problems. So um, let me ad address first the domperidone because I've I've heard Dr. Flores speak before and I'll direct all of you back to the article that he referred to, which is. Um, in the American Journal of Gastroenterology, 2003, uh, issue number eight, volume number four, 
or maybe it's vice versa. But at any rate, and and he is one of the authors, F-L-O-R-E-S. And you know Alex, what, Christy, I just put, pulled it up, and it's volume 98, number four. Okay, great. I'm so glad that you did. <laughs> so we can clarify <laughs> on that. So volume 98, nine, number four. Yes. I've heard him speak about this, and I do have some information about domperidone. Um, nothing specific about uh, necessarily what age okay. and even um, – you know, those types of things. But I will tell you that I've heard him speak and heard him share that the best source to get the domperidone for the um, dysmotility is from New Zealand. Okay. And he actually, in one of his presentations, gave a phone number, which is 877-271-6591. Now, obviously, I'm not advocating that everyone on the call go rush off and buy their domperidone from New Zealand without, you know, um, identifying whether domperidone is a potential useful therapy for you. Great. But I know that Dr. Flores has spoken about how it has been helpful in some of his patients, and it's no longer available in the United States. And um, his recommendation at this presentation that I have heard him is um, to have a cardiogram prior to use and during use and to um, take the drug 80 to 120 milligrams three times a day and after meals. And that's and the only other information I have about it at this point is that their um the price was pretty reasonable, three hundred tablets for forty dollars. Again, this is off of a presentation that he had. Um Dr. Flores also has a couple presentations online. So if you go into uh Tufts Medical Center website or actually if you just Google Alex Flores um, gastroenterology, you can link up to a couple of presentations that are about dysmotility, but again, Dr. Flores has seen a lot of mitochondrial disease patients and is, um, I think, is treating these kids and adults with mito similarly because he's trying to figure out what the root cause of the dysmotility is. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's really all the information I have. I'm sorry. Um, no, that's great. Thank okay, you. Okay, great. Now, in terms of the GJ, can you address that a little bit? I, I really wouldn't feel comfortable. I'm sorry. I think that it's a great question, though. So, okay. um, you know, if you wanted to email me the question, I'd be happy to forward it to Dr. Flores. All right. Thank um, you. Okay. Sure. And, and Christy, I have a question. Sure. Okay. I'm Jude. I'm a grandmother of a child who will be coming to Boston from Colorado briefly. I know you've spoken to my daughter-in-law. Welcome. Um, and she, yeah, thank you. And she will be seeing Dr. Holtzman here, or he will. Um, he's having a tremendous amount of problem with retching. He did get a G tube, and they did change his formula out there, and that they've pretty pretty much given up at uh, Denver Children's because they they really don't have anybody there that works with um, with Mito. But I'm wondering if because of the retching. You know, and again, it's sort of a GJ question, whether um, a GJ would be better for him as opposed to the G-tube. And I just didn't know if there was any sort of research that had been done in that department, if they, you know, even after the fundo and G-tube, whether or not, you know, if there was continued to be a tremendous amount of retching going on after feeds, whether a a J-tube would make a difference. I'll give you my thought about that, and then I think it's very useful to open that up to the group to hear what other people think. 
Okay. Um, my first approach would be to understand why the retching is happening. Uh-huh. Is the retching happening because the motility is so poor that the stomach is not emptying? Uh-huh. And, you know, because I have seen that commonly and, and heard that described in patients, that the reason that that happens is um, directly related to this very poor motility, that the uh-huh. stomach simply cannot empty. It's similar to that idea that I think it was Jenna who was talking about earlier, that, you know, you can, because you have the opportunity to have a, a G-tube, you can kind of see what's inside and you can pull right. out you know, bananas from 10 days ago. And so you're seeing that the the whole digestive process and the motility is not happening at all. So my first line of approach would be to really understand why that's happening before uh-huh. you actually explored any other, you know, alternative solution. Mm-hmm. Um, I would love to hear from other, you know, parents and patients in the group who have any experience with this um, Sometimes you guys know as much or more than the medical professionals. Anybody want to share anything? Okay. Are we still being recorded? We are still being recorded. So, okay. They've done sort of the Reglans and the Pepsids and all that and hasn't really made any difference at all, um, and the change of formula didn't. So, But I don't know that they have actually done the gastric emptying study, I'm hoping that when he comes back here to Boston that that will be something that will be implemented, you know, so that we can get an idea of exactly where this dysmotility is taking place, because I'm not right. sure they I, even know that. Well, I think that would really help for you. Um, and again, if anybody has anecdotal advice to share, sometimes we can um, learn from each other in the community. Yeah, just anything that would make him a little bit more comfortable. He is mm-hmm. completely G-tube dependent. He won't put anything in his mouth. He'll be yeah, two in October. I'm sorry to hear that he, you know, feels yucky all the time. Yeah, he didn't feel good. Any other um, GI questions that we would like to be a part of our call before I end um, the recording, and then we can do a little bit of um, small talk and introductions. I have a question. I don't know if it's really a GI question or not, but could you touch base? He mentioned something about the ketogenic diet and mitochondrial. Mm-hmm. Um, so. Go ahead. What's your question? Well, I have a, a two-year-old who's diagnosed with myocondrial, and they were talking about the ketogenic diet to handle the seizures, and I'm a little confused with what the doctor was saying. So my understanding from what Dr. Flores said and uh, um, my understanding just from the mitochondrial community, and, again, you want to you wanna always consult with your physician, Specifically, but the ketogenic diet is a is essentially a low carb, very very strict low carb, high fat diet, and can help with. It's been proven in epilepsy to regulate seizures. Right, the that's ketogenic the neurologist. Diet is, right, and so um, ketogenic diet has also been especially useful in um, children or patients who have pyruvate dehydrogenase complex deficiency as a root cause of their mitochondrial disorder. Again, when you use a high lipid, which is a high fat, low carbohydrate diet, you're helping to prevent an acidosis from happening. That's what I was looking for. Because you're starting to use the fats for the energy metabolism as opposed to having to break down the carbohydrates, which is not typically a functional process in people who have mitochondrial disease. It's kind of the very, very basic overview answer. So um, 
a ketogenic diet is used in many people with mitochondrial disease who have the seizures because it has been safely proven to actually help control seizures long-term for people who have epilepsy. And then in general, um, it depends, again, on your specific ability, I think, to digest food and to, you know, how much hypoglycemia is a problem and so forth. But many people with mitochondrial disease, particularly the respiratory chain defects, which is complex 1, 2, 3, 4, and 5, find that a lower carbohydrate, higher fat diet gives them more energy and can help them because you're not asking the body to metabolize those carbohydrates and then use gluc- and have into glucose, which then has byproducts that can build up in the blood because that respiratory chain of metabolism isn't happening, correct? Thank you. Perfect. Okay. Anybody want to add to that? Um, I would. Okay, great. Um, as far as the low carbohydrate, I'm an adult with a mitochondria disorder, and it has been proven that I have complex one. Um, I When I go on a very low-carb diet, um, not exactly a ketogenic, it's not like an allergy, I um, find that um, I can sleep. If I go off of it, I lose the ability really to sleep very much. And they've done studies on um, children with epilepsy on the ketogenic diet where um, they have um, less REM um, sleep going on and they do sleep better. And I notice it within 48 hours, and I think that's that's very interesting. And as far as um, um, when you, you fat is metabolized into glycolysis below um, complex one, so you're basically bypassing where the defect is, and I found it very beneficial. Great, great addition to the conversation. Thank you so much. Anybody else have anything to add about that? The ketogenic diet, I'll add, is something that you won't, you wouldn't just start overnight, um, particularly in a child. It would be something that you would need nutrition support, and typically you spend time in the hospital um, as a parent learning about the diet because it's very strict and specific, and making the transition into, well, just in making the transition into the diet. So it's not something that you know you would go oh. Starting today, we're going to you know, eliminate carbohydrates from the diet. It's something that's usually done a little bit more gradually. Could I add something to that, too? Um, children that have um, beta-oxidation disorders have a very, um, would be very dangerous to have a um, high-fat diet. Welcome to Verizon Wireless. The wireless customer you called is not available at this time. Please try your call again later. Announcement 1, switch to 8-1. Okay, bear with me. I'm sorry about that. And Welcome uh, to Verizon Wireless. The wireless customer you called is not available at this time. Please try your call again. Okay, I'm sorry. I'm not sure what, what was going on there. I'm going to go ahead and wrap up our recording so that we can um, move on and apologize for that interruption. Thank you so much for adding to that. I think what she was saying um, was very useful. So 
Again, thank you all for joining us, and this will be posted on our website as well as all of the others. You can stay on the line, and I'll end the recording, and we'll do some additional conversation. We usually do our introductions at the beginning of the call, but Dr. Flores had clinics, so we were changing our schedule a bit today. So thank you again, and we'll thank Dr. Flores um, for his support talking about this topic. I will just add that next month the topic is Managing the Energy Budget, and I'm hoping that Dr. Mark Corson will be able to join us again to speak about that. And then in December, we'll be talking with Dr. Kathy Sims from Massachusetts General Hospital about understanding genetic patterns of inheritance for mitochondrial disease. So thank you all again, and I'll be talking with you in just a moment. Okay, any um this is Christy. Can you all hear me? Yep. Hi, nope. Christy. Okay, great. Sorry, I don't know what was happening with the Verizon wireless caller, but um glad <laughs> glad that we're all back together. We usually have a chance to introduce ourselves and say hi to one another at the beginning of the call, but like I said, we were um working around Dr. Flores' clinic schedule, so if anybody wants to um you know, take a turn to say hello, um I would like to ask that Jean, are you still on the line? Yep. Um, there was another person who was calling in from um, BC Canada. Hi. Do you know each other, um, or <laughs> I know share email uh, addresses? I know Jean from my email address. Hi, Jean. It's Miriam. Hi there. How are you doing? Oh. Good to hear your voice. <laughs> okay. Thanks. <laughs> okay. Well, I just I, I had I couldn't resist the opportunity to um, you know connect you guys since you're in proximity to one another. So um, at least across the phone, we're all in the same place. But um, I keep on sending out the messages to the uh, BC patients, and they're starting to pick up the ball and, and come to the, the meetings, and I'm glad okay. to see that. Well, that's great. Maybe Miriam can help you with that um, that campaign now, Jean. So yes. That's great. So, well, um, anybody who'd like to say hello or just ask some general questions of the group? Christine, I would like to ask you if you can repeat, please, as I said, like we are just starting with our assessment. What was Dr. Flo's uh, recommendation of how to uh, approach the problem? What that should be done? You know, I'm going to apologize, Miriam, because off the top of my head, I don't remember. I'll have to go. I'll go back, but I would be happy to help. He does speak quickly. And so I'd be happy, we do record the call, so I'd be happy to listen more closely in the call and on the recording, and then maybe that will help us. Thank you very much. Okay, no problem. Any other Hi, questions? Or, hey. Hi. It's Wendy from Texas. Hi, Wendy, how are you? Fine, just wanted to jump in and say hi. Oh, great. Everybody, Wendy is our MITO411 volunteer coordinator. She's amazing lady and taking care of her own kids and also helping me quite a bit with managing our volunteers and getting people trained and managing the calls that come in for MITO 411. If you guys don't know, I'd love to just share with you what MITO 411 is because it's a, a great service if you talk to people and it's also something you might consider being a volunteer for yourself. Um, about a year and a half ago, we started a toll-free hotline that is quote, staffed by volunteers that is called 888-MITO-411. And basically, um, Wendy and I and Carol Slipowitz, who's a social worker, uh, 
train the volunteers to be good listeners and not to give advice or solutions or the perfect answers, because we don't have those in mitochondrial disease, but to just be able to be a good listener and to share resources and to relate to people who need to talk to somebody who can understand what it's like to have the challenges of mito. We have adults and caregivers and parents of affected children who are volunteers, and then the volunteers are on for a month. And when a person calls, they leave a message on a toll-free line, and then that message is delivered to the volunteer's email. And you can listen to the message as an audio file right from your email. It's, it's pretty neat. And then the volunteers can call, coordinate calling the person back, usually within 24 hours. And um, it, it works really well, and it's, it's great. We've had quite a few calls, and it's a great way for us to be able to um, give people some positive support right at that, you know, moment that they need it. And I'm sure you guys can all relate to how um, lonely it can be if you're dealing with whether it be your initial diagnosis or just some of the more crummy days of being a <laughs> in the life of mitochondrial disease. And so that's the purpose of that program. And if you're interested at all in learning more about it or in spreading the word about it or in being a volunteer, um, Wendy, is it okay if I share your Mito 401 email address? They can Absolutely. just contact me directly. Great. Absolutely. So Wendy is in Texas, but she's she's super and can tell you when the trainings are. They're all by phone, and her email is Mito M I T O 411 at mitoaction.org. Thanks, Wendy, for saying hi. Sure. I will say again because I rec said this at the beginning of the call, two things that are on our website that I'd love to direct you guys to. One is the symptom guide for clinicians. If you don't know about that or you haven't seen that yet, there's an excellent section on GI that's in that guide, as well as pretty much every other system of the body. This was put together by Dr. Mark Corson and his nurse practitioner, Margaret Clem. And I'm just going to mute the line for a minute so you guys can hear me because there's some background noise. One second. Okay, can you guys hear me? Um, so they're on the MitoAction website. If you go to mitoaction.org slash guide, that's the address, um, mitoaction.org forward slash G-U-I-D-E, that's the address for the clinician's guide. And you'll have to accept a terms of use and enter your email address in order to get to the guide, but that's really just a um, legality so that we feel that we have given people a, um, a word of advice on how to use the guide before um, we don't sell your email address or anything like that. And then you can look that up. It's free to access, and it's the kind of thing that we purposely did not print out a bunch of copies because they're about 200 pages if you printed out the whole thing. And it's much easier to actually just click through using the table of contents page to any section that you want to look at. And um, so that's the way that we recommend that clinicians access it too, is that you tell your doctors what the website address is, or you just print out one section and then write the address on that section so that they can go back to it and look up more information if they'd like to. 
Um, let me unmute everybody in case anybody has any questions or things to add. So that is mitoaction.org slash guide and really a useful um, area of the website with lots of good information and, and some of the things that Dr. Flores talked about today as well. And then another area of the website that I want to direct you guys to is um, we have a new online community. And it's not something I've really advertised too much, but I will start promoting more this month. Please take, it out, take a look and check it out. You can access it right off the homepage, or if you're the kind of person that likes to know direct addresses, it's mitoaction.org forward slash forum, F-O-R-U-M. And there's um, a section on there for just about everybody. And you can post, and you can also um, subscribe, which means you'll get an email when new topics or emails or comments have been added to the areas that you're interested in. So that's something I'd like you guys to all look at and help us to use. It's just going to be a little bit more organized than um, the Yahoo groups. Our purpose of that is to be able to have a place where people who are coming into this disease or diagnosis um, or who are looking for specific answers can actually follow the threads easily to be able to find the advice or experiences of others as well as ask their questions. Um, can you guys, I, I think I have you off mute. Can everybody hear me? Yes. Yeah. Okay, there you are. Okay, great. <laughs> Anybody else have any um, news or things to share with the group? Oh, well, you guys are giving me the floor, and I could talk all day. So <laughs> I have two more things that I want to say. The first one is I want to thank everybody for all their support last month. Um, it was a tremendous month, and I'm really excited that we – I feel like we did make an impact with Mitochondrial Disease Awareness Week. Lots of you were doing things in your own community, and we had a lot of success here in the New England area with actual fundraising as well, which – which is basically the only time of year that we ask people to reach out into their community and get support for what we're doing. And then we raised over $100,000, and that money is basically our budget for next year that keeps the website fresh and current, funds new programs, funds me, and, um, and allows us to develop new things. So there's some exciting things that I hope are going to happen in 2009, including adding a disability attorney to our MITO 411 program and looking into having um, a nurse who would be available to answer questions as well. Those things are still just um, in the percolating phase, but um, they're things that I think that our community really needs. The other thing that I um, wanted to mention to everybody is to help me spread the word that we do have a new diagnosis support group going on, and it's also by phone, and it's the second Friday of every month, so the next one would take place um, next Friday at noon using the same conference call number that you used for this one. And um, I encourage you to help me with whatever groups you subscribe to or people that you know. That's just an informal time to talk, less structured than what we have today, but a great way if you're newly diagnosed or potentially diagnosed or going through a diagnosis or just having a bad day, you're welcome to join and, um, you know, have some other people who can understand and to talk to and ask questions and so forth. Can I just ask a clarifying question on that? Sure. You, it's going to be um, type-specific or just general? Oh, no, 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 just general. 
Okay, I thought you said um, specific diagnosis. So, no, even if if you don't have a diagnosis, a suspected okay. diagnosis, you know, mm-hmm. lots of folks the, take a couple years to really get that definitive diagnosis for mitochondrial disease, and you're certainly not excluded if mm-hmm. you don't have the paperwork in hand. I guess mm-hmm. is my is my point about that. So, it's a great way to ask questions of other folks or just share your experiences or, um, you know feel out what's going on with other people who are going through it, too. Thank you. Sure. Somebody else was going to say something? Is it next Friday, you said? Next Friday. At the same time? Which is the 10th of October. Yes, at the same time, which is noon Eastern time. Okay. Lasts about an hour. And same phone number as today, which is also on the website. Thank you. You're welcome. All right, anything else anybody wants to speak up and share about? Okay, well, thank you guys so much for being here. I'll go, I'll go ahead and work on getting this uh, audio file put up on the website right now. If any of you are interested in iTunes, you have an iPod that you like. Um, we've just recently started putting the recordings on the website where you can play them right off your computer. We've had that, but we just also put them into iTunes so you can put them as a free podcast, which then downloads onto your iPod. So if you're the kind of person that likes to take it with you, you can do that easily now using, um, if you have an iPod, using iTunes. There's a section, Mito Action Podcast, and of course all of those are free there as well. And it's a nice way to see the whole catalog of all the meetings or the recordings. Um, we also have a, an awareness campaign extension going on right now that if you would like to try to win an iPod, we're doing a, an awareness um, campaign where you can forward e-cards to people that basically just say, what is mitochondrial disease, and give a little description. And oh. every time you do that, you get a chance to win an iPod. So um, if you are interested in that and didn't get the email, um, let me think, what's the best way for me to tell you to do that? You should probably just email me directory so I can forward that to you. Um, be sure that you're subscribed on our website so that, so that you're getting the email alerts about, um, you know, upcoming meetings and summaries of the meetings and so forth. Um, I promise not to bother you too much. <laughs> okay, any other questions or comments before we say goodbye? Thank you again, Christy. Thank you, Jean. Thank you all for thank calling you. in, and thank you for being um, so supportive of Dr. Flores and his time there this morning as well. I think that was very useful. So I'll be working to get this on the website, and feel free, as always, to email me with questions, director at mitoaction.org. Thank you. Okay. Thank you all. Take care. Thank Bye. you. Bye. Have a great weekend. Bye. Bye-bye.